And we're back again, week 17 from the Blue Corner. My name is Dennis. Um, It's taken 17 weeks for me to realise that you actually have to tell people to like, to subscribe, you know, all that good stuff. So this is it. I'm letting everyone know. Um, Also, give it a share. Uh, But we'll get straight on to today's episode. Uh, Today's guest is a good friend of mine. Um, He actually coached me for my one and only fight uh we might get into that maybe not maybe uh he's got a uh boxing record of six and zero a muay thai record of um ten and zero and uh he's got a mixed martial arts record of nine and five with one no contest even though he claims it was still a loss i'm talking about the um one, the only, uh, Richie Walsh. How have you been and how has 2020 been treating you? Yeah, good. Um, obviously, 2020 has been interesting for everybody, I think. And, um, you know, I'm no exception having been back in Australia since January, um, living the last three years in China and Asia. So, yeah, 2020 has been a bit of an up and a down, but, you know, also uh, a good year. I've just had, uh, you know, my daughter uh, born. So first, first, first bub and uh, a lot of things happening, as you can imagine. So first time father, and, and, and it's funny that you come this week because I was actually going to say, like, what was more ner- nerve-wracking, right? I kind of feel like we're in fight week. And, and the reason I say that is that you're actually going to have your Father's Day debut this Sunday. <laughs> um, you know, so, yeah, how, how, how does it feel that you're actually going to be able to celebrate, I guess, you know, Father's Day? I mean, I haven't given it too much thought this weekend about Father's Day, but I'm just getting my head around being being a dad, you know, and, and um, you know, those late nights changing nappies and, and getting up is is all a trip, you know. And, you know, in, in my head, you know, sometimes I still feel like I'm 15 or I'm 20 or I'm 22, but I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm a dad, I'm, I'm there. It's kind of surreal and it's definitely been, um, you know, the best experience of my life, surpassing anything that I've done before, um, you know, whether it be fighting, anything else. This is this is it, you know, this is the pinnacle. And is it everything that you expected it to be or, or you know, did you go into it like, I mean, you obviously have nine months to prepare, right? Um, so did you go into it, you know, thinking it was going to be, I mean, everyone always talks about the late nights or the no, the sleepless nights. So that that's sort of a no-brainer. But is there anything that's kind of caught you off guard, like, uh, I guess, with the amount of responsibility or, or, or just anything? Like, was it was it the way you thought it would be or, or, or yeah, as I say, has there, has there been, you know, a few things that you're like, damn, I wasn't expecting Honestly, this. Honestly, I, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I did, a kid, but uh, in terms of, you know, um, being a parent, I mean, I think it's all new and until you experience that, there's only so much people can tell you about it. Definitely some sleepless nights, um, you know, big adjustment. But like we said before, because of this COVID-19, I've had the opportunity to be at home and be back in Australia and, and kind of take on that responsibility as a full-time dad with with my wife so uh it's probably been the best case scenario for for bringing a child into the world and yeah like i said before it's the best thing that's that's happened to me it's it's probably the pinnacle of you know what you can do as a you know as somebody on this earth i mean uh richard cranny said that same thing he was like you know being a parent and obviously a, a husband is like he his lifelong sort of goals um are you the type that uh what are they called? Uh, had like a reveal party and stuff, or are you the type <laughs> that likes to have a surprise and 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 you know? So no, I, I didn't have a reveal, a gender reveal. We actually joke about this, you know. I've seen all sorts of gender reveals, and 
Personally, I, I would find it a little bit embarrassing to do um, because I don't like that sort of attention on me or on, on anything that I'm, I'm kind of doing in my personal life as such. Um, but I mean, I've seen some good ones. I've, de- I've seen some people doing burnouts in cars with tyres that are coloured blue or pink and you name it, I've seen it. But yeah, <laughs> no gender reveal for me. Um, we did find out the sex, you know, I've just had a baby girl, but we found out the sex at about uh, 20 weeks or something like that. So it, for me, it wasn't a big deal to, to keep it a surprise or have a reveal, but each to your own, I guess. And it's funny because some of those reveals are actually, as you say, some of them are good, but I, I actually get like amusement out of the ones that go wrong, right? Like some for whatever reason, cringy. like I've seen pinata ones and stuff and like that person's missed the pinata and hit their partner <laughs> and stuff like that. And it's just like, yeah, this is crazy. But it, it's funny that they've actually like made it into a thing now. Like I, I, I'm the same. I'm kind of like, I wouldn't really want a gender reveal. I, I mean, I'm one of those that I actually just want to be surprised at birth like that's just me I, I totally understand but I, I mean I had this conversation with my wife and we both went we're kind of indifferent on whether we know or not so yeah we may as well find out and then we can start buying the right kind of clothes and whatever else but a gender reveal wasn't on wasn't on uh wasn't on the agenda that's all I can say it's a little bit cringe for me so you've you've obviously been living in China for a while now and and you you had the baby here was that to plan or has that got something to do with obviously the COVID like were you sent back like well no, I mean I, I came back for a holiday myself my wife came back for a holiday in January just which was around Chinese New Year holiday and at that stage the the COVID outbreak wasn't a thing you know it wasn't a thing over here it wasn't a thing in China during my holiday out of here for 10 days you know which I brought you know my summer gear my flip-flops whatever else you know we, we kind of got the call from China that you know, things are getting bad here and they're escalating so we kind of got stuck out here and, and by no choice of our own had to, you know, rent a place here and we were planning on having the child back in Shanghai and everything was, we had an obstetrician there, everything was to plan and, you know, I mean, we just kind of adapted and kind of had to stay fluid like a lot of people did in 2020 and, and uh, you know, had the child here. But it's turned out, you know, to be uh, a blessing in disguise because, like I said, I've got that time with my wife, my time with, you know, my baby and also family, Um having the having the child here is definitely an advantage you know being home is is sweet which is an important one you know like to have that family around and and it would have been worse uh, the other way around i mean i had um dave francis on a couple of weeks back and he was saying even though they they live in the same country uh, her her family are in adelaide and because of the border restrictions at the moment he said since they've had the kid you know um that the, the mother's been able to come across once, but she had to do the two-week quarantine and mm-hmm. all that stuff. But the rest of the family still haven't even met the kid. So it's kind of, uh, as you say, it, it really is a blessing. Um, have you had to then, obviously, when you say you've, you've got an apartment here, have you had to keep your apartment over there too? So you, Yeah, like, well, initially I did because I didn't know how long this, you know, this thing was going to go on for. So we thought maybe one, two months would have to stay here. That turned into three, four once I got to about three or four months, you know, I was renting an apartment there for you know, a lot of money each week. So I decided I'd, I'd send some people in there, pack up my stuff, put it in storage, um, you know, and just kind of buy some stuff while I was here. So basically got online, bought secondhand tables, chairs, rented a place here and, and just made do, set up for the baby and, and kind of set our lives up here temporarily while working, you know, online. You know, basically I've got a meeting every morning for the operations of, of, the, of the gym or the Performance Institute where I'm working and and you know life goes on i guess we've just adapted and you know i I, eventually i will go back but um like i said 2020 
2020. It is, right? And, and I mean, I was actually going to ask that, like, are you like on permanent holiday at the moment or are they are getting you to still work while you're over here? Still I working. The, the operations of uh, the Performance Institute, which we run in Shanghai, just started uh, the start of the month, or oh, sorry, last month. So it's been up and running for one month. But whilst we've been uh, in Australia, it's been... You know, it's been awesome. The UFC have you know continued to look after all the staff and and keep us busy. We've been working on a, a journal, which is the second volume of the UFC Performance Institute journal. Um, you know, kind of encompassing everything about MMA training. So we're trying to put that all out there on a public forum or online or a published copy. So you know, trainers, athletes, uh, fans, everybody can kind of get involved and see what's involved in um, you know training an athlete right from. Uh, off camp, you know, to fight camp, to recovery and, and everything that's involved, whether it be physiotherapy, sports science, uh, skills training, periodization for fight camps, etc. Yeah, nice. So we'll get on to the PI a little later down the track. I, I, I want to probably start at the beginning anyway. Um, you know, uh, as I said, I, I read up a little bit about obviously your, your history and, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I, I had no idea you even had a boxing record, like, yeah. uh, to be to be honest, or a Muay Thai record. I was like, damn, yeah. he was doing Muay Thai. I, yeah. I, I knew you did wrestling. I knew you did uh, the jits. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it came across as well that you studied a little bit for construction, um, law. Um, yeah. So I, I just want to, like... Dipping my toes in everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I basically wanted to start at the beginning. So, yeah. wh- which came first? Like, were were you first an academic or? Uh, well, I wouldn't say I was ever academic. You know, to a point, academic. Obviously, um, you know, I started uh, university straight out of school. Um, started my undergraduate, and I, you know, I just picked a course that I was mildly interested in, in construction, and went to New South Wales University. Um, but really, I mean, I'd started martial arts a couple of years prior to that, you know, just before finishing high school. And um, my kind of passion at that time was, you know, my brain was just busy thinking about martial arts, martial arts, martial arts. So I think um, doing the undergraduate for four years gave me an opportunity to, you know, kind of hone my skills. You know, I always say it was it was getting a degree in, you know, construction, but my primary focus was my degree in martial arts. So that four years of, uh, you know, study was an opportunity to basically train morning and night. And, um, you know, I first started learning Muay Thai, then boxing, jiu-jitsu, all kind of around a similar time because my goal was to fight MMA. And um, obviously when you want to fight MMA, you've got to learn how to fight properly. And I guess the individual arts that encompass MMA are striking, wrestling, and some sort of grappling or ground game. So, and so some and someone who's done a bit of a uh, bit of everything, like, it, mm-hmm. you know, because they always talk about the new breed right now, right, where basically you you can train in MMA. Mm-hmm. Um, where back in the day, it, it used to be about, you know, some people would be karate background, some people would be jujitsu background. And, I mean, that was the whole premise of, of the UFC was let's put these guys up against each other and see which martial arts is the supreme, right? Uh, where now it really is, you go to these schools and it's like I'm training in MMA. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we were to break it down, and I and I know that there's never a clear cut answer because you'll always get a, a champion that has still got the BJJ background or whatever. But you know, if if a young kid is starting up um, and wanted to focus solely on on one discipline, um, in your eyes, what 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 do you think is like the uh, best discipline to kind of have. I mean, I, I'll, I I'll put it straight out. Like in in my eyes, I always say wrestling. 
that that's that's me and I, and I just find that you know I, I find with wrestling you dictate where the fight goes absolutely right? I, so I, think, I think that's it's a hard question because um, over the period of 25 years of the UFC that's kind of we've seen that change initially it was obviously jiu-jitsu with the Gracies you know, no one had seen that kind of ground game um, and then that kind of changed to more of a wrestling uh, ground and pound sprawl and brawl whatever you want to call it um, and and now we're kind of seeing it come full circle where I think wrestlers or Strikers who can wrestle are dominating, um, you know, the proceedings or dominating the UFC fights. So, in my opinion, now um, if you have a strong wrestling base, of course, but you need to be able to strike. And we're seeing uh, wrestlers who can strike. Um, and again, we're seeing fights that aren't going to the ground. And if they do go to the ground, it's it's popping back up to the feet very very quickly. So, in my opinion, the best bang for your buck would be to learn obviously a striking art. You have to be efficient and proficient on your feet. Um, you know, other, otherwise you're never going to win a fight. But also, you need to be able to wrestle. And uh, wrestling doesn't just dictate the, you know, the clinch, but it's also the, the getting up back to your feet. So if you can then can keep it in the range that you're comfortable with, um, ideally you're going to be, um, you know, have higher chance of winning that fight. But to answer your question, it's kind of a tricky one because MMA is still based around, um, you know, athleticism, um, how competitive someone is, and obviously their skill sets. So that all kind of factors into, you know. What best suits you anthropomorphically? Are you tall and long, so you're going to be a good long striker? Are you powerful and got one-punch knockout? Are you really explosive and isometrically strong? Are you suited to wrestling? So there's the individual aspect, and there's also um, the money ball. You know, what's the best bang for your buck? What are people doing? What's the trend? And what's going to win you fights the quickest? Because we only have a uh, finite amount of time to learn skills, right? And if we're starting a sport, we don't have 20 years to learn one art and 20 years to learn another. So, you know, you've got to narrow down what you can learn and be more particular in what you're choosing. For example, if I wanted to be a good MMA fighter, I wouldn't necessarily now go into a first first day white belt gi class and learn lapel chokes and, and a lot of techniques that aren't going to complement MMA. I'd be trying to fast track that and go to a wrestling class, learn how to box, learn how to kickbox, etc., and put it together and go to a gym that, that does that. You know, and, and that way you're not kind of you're cutting off the fat and you're kind of getting right to the point of what you want to do, the nuts and bolts. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, what I was saying, though, uh, about dictating where the fight goes, and I think that's why it's so important is because, you know, if, if you are faced with, say, a better striker, mm-hmm. right, as a wrestler, you are going to find a way to put it to the ground, right? And then you sure. find someone who's maybe better at BJJ than you. As a wrestler, you're going to find a way to stand that thing back yeah. up, right? I, I just feel like it's that good, as I say, it dictates where the fight goes. The other thing that I, I, I find with the wrestling is a mindset. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, like, when I mean wrestling's not big over here, it really isn't, and and I mm. think that that's a flaw in the Australian. I mean, when you talk about yeah. the Americans coming up in their schooling system, they have so much. Well, they have the the school, the high school wrestling, collegiate wrestling, and one thing I, I definitely agree with you on is that mindset of wrestling is that grind. It's embracing that. It's that. It's that um, athleticism based with mental capacity. And I think that that transfers into MMA very, very well, but it also transfers into the training of MMA, you know, the repetition-based, the mindset. And with striking in MMA, if you're a phenomenal wrestler, which I will agree with you on this point, if you're a great wrestler and you can learn competent level of striking, I think the intent of striking is actually more important than the technique. For example, you see very good wrestlers whose striking technique or pedigree is not that of anybody else who, at a higher level, but they have power, they have speed, they have determination and want to land those strikes. And that counts for a lot, um, particularly when no one can take you down. And if you have a relentless kind of fitness level and the intent to land strikes, 
most of the time you will land them. And for yourself, because as I say, like we don't have that wrestling base over here, but I, I know you you do a bit of wrestling. Mm-hmm. So so coming up, where 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 did you? I guess um, it was hard because there's there's limited amount of. I mean, there's some Europeans, some Russians that had been in Sydney that wrestled, and um, formerly I'd, I'd trained. You know, my coach knew a bit of judo, so we started off there, and then I'd went to a few wrestling gyms um, around Sydney and did a lot of driving. Um, until I met um, my wrestling coach who I'd used for my you know, UFC career and before that, Gary Jones, who was actually an American NCAA wrestler from New Jersey who um, you know, came out here on a lifeguard exchange out of all things and then, and then met his wife and, and now married here with children. So th- that's how I you know, was exposed to a high-level collegiate-style wrestling or that folk-style wrestling was through Gary. So you know, I'd, I'd seen him working with um, another gym or another fighter, actually Sonny Brown, and I contacted him, um, I think just inboxed him and said, look, you know, I'd, I'd be interested in doing a lesson with your wrestling coach. Can you, can you give me his details? And that's kind of start how it started happen, uh, how it happened. Sorry. And um, then Gary became, you know, my wrestling coach and was involved with the gym that I trained at. And, and now he's running um, the Wrestling Foundation. You know, if anybody wants to check him out, very, very good coach, very competent and uh, accomplished wrestler. And did you did you continue with the wrestling? Because you you said you did your construction uh, mm-hmm. degree here at uh, UNSW, mm-hmm. but your law you did, oh, no, at, I did at Georgia Tech. No, I did. Or? I did um, part of my construction degree over a year in Atlanta, Georgia, for construction. Um, with I, I started very briefly started a Juris Doctor, which is a, a law degree here in Sydney, and then. Um, quickly found out that you know I didn't want to read 40 hours a week and uh, <laughs> and go down that and that was about the time actually um, when I started that degree that was at UTS that my coach uh, Liam Reznikov was like look you, you're at a crossroads here I think um, around the time I fought Callum Potter he's like we can really make a, a go of this and you can get into the UFC or you can kind of call it quits now keep studying go down that route so this is this is the crossroads you're at you know and if you want to commit to uh, trying to you know live that UFC dream, let's do it. You know, let's train every day, twice a day. Let's let's write down the goals and let's get it done. So that's when I decided that I wasn't going to do the postgraduate. That I was actually going to just focus on the on making the UFC. I you know then I strung three wins together and then the Ultimate Fighter popped up and and that's just kind of that's all she wrote. Did the Ultimate Fighter come up that early? Because uh, when when I was looking at it, uh, it looked like you went nine and one. Before the the ultimate fighter, right? Yeah. Um, like like ba- ba- basically, you you had a really good record. I, I think mm-hmm. the only loss you had on your record was Robert Whitaker, former champ, <laughs> Robert Whitaker. <laughs> and at right? the time, I was like, ah, oh, I can't believe I bloody lost to this guy. Who is this guy? But yeah, I mean, little did we know. You know, I mean, we both we were so young, but little did we know we were going to both reach the UFC and he was going to be the champion. I mean, at a higher weight division. So you know, now it doesn't feel that bad. <laughs> you know, you lost to him. Um, but yeah, I think I was, it might've been seven and one or eight and one, something like that by the time I did make the ultimate fighter. But that was around the time I believe that I'd, I'd finished my degree. I might've been a year in between and that I'd had three fights. I think I, I can't remember. One of the fights was Callum Potter who was in the UFC, but he's obviously a little bit older. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm losing timeline now. It seems so long ago. And when you get punched in the head, you can't remember these dates. 
It's funny every every time I talk to someone from from combat, uh, yeah. Luke Jackson's a big one of that boxer. Every time you know we'll, we'll we'll arrange to meet up or something, he'll forget and he'll be like, "Mate, I get punched in the head for a living," you know. And, <laughs> hey, and it's you, a good excuse. It's a good excuse. You got to give it to him. So talking about the Ultimate Fighter though, um, it wasn't the Smashes series. You you actually did the the Tough Nations. Um, I did. Yeah, I tried out for the Smashes, which was the which was Robert Whitaker's um, series that he won. Um, only to be a reserve on that. And I think, sorry, now now it's coming back to me. <laughs> that was the time then that I actually had to have a couple more wins. Um, and then they did come back out with the uh, Tough Nations, which was Australia versus Canada, filmed in Canada. And that was the one I tried out for and actually you know, was on the cast for that as a welterweight. So the first one I did try it for was only a reserve. Second one was on that series and, and that was in Canada. So that's, yeah, that, that was my start in the UFC. And that was the opportunity that basically that I wanted and needed to um, to get on that stage. So being that it was filmed in Canada, was the was the tryouts in Canada or was the tryouts still here? Yeah, the tryouts were both. I think the Australian team, uh, the tryouts were in Sydney, so we had people flying from all over the country to try it here. And uh, in Canada, it was the same scenario. They had a tryouts in, maybe they had East and West Coast, I'm not sure, but they had the tryouts over there. And uh, once they'd, they'd got the cast together, we were kind of, you know, assembled flown out to Canada where we do the filming in um, Montreal, Quebec, or it was a town outside of Montreal in the countryside. It was like a big log cabin. It was snowing. It was the full, you know, Canadian uh, ideal kind of setting outdoors. So it was really, really cool and unique experience. Um, but again, you know, imagine eight weeks, no phone, no TV, no communication with family. You don't know these bunch of seven other smelly dudes you're living with and you're fighting the other team and, you train about three hours a day. Your coaches are hammering you, and yeah, it was all it was all um, quite overwhelming. And I I enjoyed it, and you know I kind of got behind it, but I could see how some people would, would go nuts and, and not enjoy that kind of situation. And is it uh, an invitational kind of tryout, or is it something that you apply for? Because you know, with some mm. of these reality TV shows, it's like you know we're we're film. I don't even know, like American Ninja or Australian Ninja. We've got our own series now, you know, and they say you know we're we're filming this send your demo tapes in or whatever or is it that you know the ufc actively look at you know what's going on in the regional scene and they send you an invite rather than than how, how does it was that all work that one was definitely a, a tryout type scenario but you had to have at least three professional fights you had to have um, a video reel you had to be accepted to come to the tryouts it was it, there was some sort of criteria if if i do recall for actually trying you know for, for coming to the selections and and kind of going through the process or the rigors I, I if i can recall it was um you know there was a grappling component to it where they kind of matched us up with somebody for a, a three-minute grappling round they wanted to look at your your skills there there was a pad holding section where they watched you kick and and watch you, you know, hit mitts um and then there was some interviews so it wasn't solely based on um skills or record it was a combination of skills technically um, your record in MMA and also, I guess, how you interviewed and what you were kind of going to bring to the show. You know, obviously, they're still going to make TV. Um, yeah, so it was an interesting experience. I, I still remember the tryouts was, you know, you, you got there and it was the who's who of Australian MMA, you know, big dudes, um, ugly ears. Well, you, you, you had Dan Kelly on your series, right? I had Dan and Kelly. And I think Jake Matthews as well, right? Yeah, Jake Matthews, Daniel Kelly, um, to name a few. And, um, I mean, I didn't know either of them well before the series but afterwards we were very very good mates so you imagine if you're in a house obviously with you know, eight weeks with a group of guys you're gonna know them pretty well by the end of it so we've continued that friendship 
especially with those two guys and, and Brendan O'Reilly, um, you know, f- till now, and we still talk regularly. Um, but yes, they were at the tryouts. I think at the time, Daniel was 36 or 37 when he was first in the UFC. So he may have been 36 at the tryouts. You imagine he's already done uh, three Olympics and decided he wanted to try his hand at MMA and continue that till he was 40. It was a pretty late start for him. Jake at the time was maybe 20. So he was one of the youngest to make the UFC roster when he did at 20 or 21. So yeah, it was crazy experience and, and some uh, good friendships were forged and, and still remain to this day. And I guess, was it was it hard to to be in that sort of, I mean, I, I'll compare it to the Wimps Warrior experience, right? Mm-hmm. Where I always say, you know, which is tougher, not knowing anything about your opponent um, or being, in your case, I mean, for us it was just we were training together, together but for you, you were actually trapped in the same house. Mm. Um, you know, it, which do you find harder? And, and I only say that because, like, for, for my sort of series, like, I was like, damn, like, it's hard. I mean, it's kind of good because over the time you can kind of, like, eye out, ah, they're good mm. at this. I, I, I could maybe get them here. I could do this. Sure. But on the other token is you start to form friendships, friendships yeah. right? Yeah. And then suddenly you might be paired off against each other and it's like, oh. Because you hear about, like, I mean, when, when you see what happened with, um, was it Rashad Evans and, and John Jones, right? Yeah. In a camp, all of a sudden they both want the title and it just totally destroyed that kind of relationship. Absolutely. Um, I, I think um, I didn't have either of those problems because I didn't get to see the Canadians train. So I couldn't... I couldn't um, you know, kind of ascertain how, how or who I was fighting and what their skill set was like. Um, the second was we didn't actually become too close to the Canadians friendship-wise, so I didn't have those two problems. But the problem that I did have was, yes, I was in the house with them the whole time. There's the unknown of how, how good they are, how they've been training, and you're seeing that person you're fighting every day, and I know you would have felt the same. It's it's a little bit you know uncomfortable for me, um, especially. I would rather than almost not watch their tapes, not know who I'm fighting that well and just go fight. The sitting around and the seeing the opponent and the you know, the whole hoorah that goes with fighting was something that I didn't necessarily enjoy. I actually enjoy, you know, the competition side of it and being in there in that in that moment, you know, that kind of flow state, that fight or flight, those nerves and that accomplishment that you feel after you fight. The whole lead up to it and the you know the everything that's involved with it to me is is actually a bit sickening, um, so that's why it's kind of nice to now be coaching and and take my experience from that and pass it on to other people rather than being in there in the center of the you know the limelight myself because the pressure that I felt um, from myself was was enough to uh, you know, take years off my life. Certainly lost my hair. <laughs> and talking about like uh, the, the the coaching side of things, like how how. How did you enjoy the difference there? Because I assume you know when when you when you weren't on the tough, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm sure you had other fighters come out of your camp or whatever. But usually, when you have a fight lined up, you know the attention is on you um, for whatever it is eight weeks, ten weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, where something like tough, I mean, you know, like how how did that all change? Like because obviously, I, I mean, how many were on Team Australia? You. There was four four welterweights, four middleweights. So there's eight total. Right, and how many coaches? Um, there would have been three. We had three coaches. So, so do you feel like you know what I'm saying? Like, do you do you, do, you, do you did I get enough attention? Is that what you're saying? Well, not so much the attention, like because I'm not saying like you're yeah. an attention seeker, and but like just having that, you know, where 
you know, um, not the but only it one is fighting. It, it is kind of like the attention, right? So like yeah. we're we're going to find sparring partners for you specifically. Mm-hmm. This this you know, and and get you ready for your fight. Where yeah. all of a sudden I, you're I, in a household where now mm-hmm. everyone's getting ready. Everyone's got a fight. Um, and and the coach's time, I guess, is very limited to to what they can actually give you. Yeah, I definitely don't think the Ultimate Fighter was ideal for anybody because you kind of. Um, you're subject to your coaches that you have and and their idea of a training camp with eight randoms and how they can make you win. So they, there wasn't so much uh, research into, you know, Rich, what was your training camp before you came on The Ultimate Fighter? Um, did they watch all my videos? Did they know my style? Do they know me? Do they know how I fight? Do they know what I need? Do they know your personal needs, your, you know, psychological needs, etc.? I don't think you have that home advantage in terms of, your own coach being there in your corner and that attention that, that you probably need. Um, so, yeah, I definitely think that was that was testing. Um, I thought that we trained too much. Um, the emphasis was on training hard, and I don't know if it was for the camera, it was for people just want to train hard, but the, the training was too hard in my opinion. It was eight weeks of, you know, getting the guts flogged out of us, um, no periodization, no taper, and you could fight at any moment. You know, there should have been a conversation um, you know, if I was coaching the ultimate fighter or anything, it would be, okay, you know, Dennis, you've came here, uh, you've come here, sorry, um, what was your training before? Are you fit? Are you in shape? Are you ready to go? Are you carrying an injury? Um, what would you like to do? You know, we have eight weeks here. Would you like to focus on striking? Would you like to do a little bit on your own? Um, you know, how do you like to prepare for a camp? How do you like to cut weight, etc.? So I think there was not many of those questions being thrown around, and I think that would have been um, more beneficial if everybody, you know, especially coaching, knew exactly what each individual needed. Um, that was probably the biggest concern for me. You know, by the time I got out of the Ultimate Fighter, I was absolutely wrecked. Like, I'm, my body was just in a total limp mode. Like, you know, it was injuries, and you, and, sore, and, everything. And and for for that, do you, um, you know, try to stay on weight the whole time, or are you going up and down, up and down uh, in the Ultimate Fighter or outside? Uh, in the Ultimate Fighter. Oh, in the Ultimate Fighter, I never had a problem with my weight. I was always pretty close to welterweight anyway. Like I only cut four to five kilos. I was never a, you know, a big welterweight in terms of weight. Um, so I didn't have the issue of, of you know, yo-yoing up and down in weight. I always stayed consistent. Um, so for me, was, if anything, it was being too light was an issue. You know, and I know for other people, not knowing when you're going to fight within an eight-week period is a little bit concerning, especially if you are big and you just get notice on, you know, three or four days that, hey, you're fighting, you know, so and you have to make weight. But for me, that wasn't an issue. So if anything, it was it was keeping that weight up so I could train properly because because we just did so much volume of training then that we were all losing weight. And I have to ask, like, you know, what they always say and, and, and people always come out with reality TV, you know, afterwards, oh, they painted me in this way or they painted me in that way. Um, how, how much of the ultimate fighter, I guess, it, it is what you see mm-hmm. and how much of it, do you feel like was set for production? Like, were there ever any moments where the production crew would come and go, listen, we need to film X or we need to film Z Not or or, yeah, were, or a, were they more just flies on the wall? And more flies on the wall in, in terms of the ultimate fight. I feel like in other reality TV shows, they, they make the drama and that's what sells it. Maybe in the UFC, I think initially in the ultimate fighters, there was definitely some more action. <laughs> the ones that I remember watching when, um, you know, when I first was in, introduced to martial arts were a little bit more exciting, I think, than maybe ours. Like, I feel like the Canadians and Australians were 
were so amicable and everybody was friends. I was like, oh, this is a little bit boring. Let's somebody needs to fight each other in the house or something. Well, um, I, well, I think it's because both of our cultures. I mean, Canadians are really good, cool correct. people, right? And 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 we're kind of like laid back as well. Um, so I think did they have alcohol in in the house? Yeah, they had alcohol, but again, like it was, we just had a lot of. There was look, there was one bloke from our team, uh, Tyler, that definitely um, you know had a, had a few drinks. But besides that, there wasn't there wasn't that many guys who were crazy. I think if they wanted to cast it and not pick the best fighters, definitely you could get a bit of that. You could, if I was casting it, I'd probably pick a couple of loose cannons and put them in there just for you know comedic value or um, you know some drama. But we actually probably had you know a real good mix of people, and and one of the Canadians ended up being my main training partner for the majority of my UFC fights. So so I'd say we got along better than than anybody planned. So what you would bring him over to Australia for for you? Yeah, camps? there there was um, a guy in there who actually made the final, Sheldon Westcott, and um, I used to bring him over for all the UFC fights just as part of my training camp. Just fly him over and um, put him up in my house, and we'd train every day for four or five weeks. So he was another person that helped me a lot through throughout my kind of career and and helped me upskill, I guess, with wrestling and and grappling. Just a real phenomenal grappler, and if you watch him on the Ultimate Fighter, he. You know, he won by submission. He he beat Daniel Kelly with um, a Von Flu choke, and and um, actually he may have got two Von Flu chokes. Sorry, yes, yeah. So very very strong submission guy, and and yeah, he he used to come over every fight camp. Do you think that's important over here? Like, as in, mm-hmm. you know, when 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 I do my trips over to Vegas and stuff, like I'm always amazed at like you know you go to Extreme Couture or you go to Syndicate or whatever, and and, and there's just so many fighters there, mm. right? And 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 to some degree, it's like actually really funny to watch because you see their pro sparring sessions, and it's like yeah. it's something that I've never seen over here, right? Like, yeah. come out of there kind of shocked. I'm like, oh, they're trying to kill each other. Um, but do you find that? Um, you know, it's important to fly these guys across. Um, or, or do you think we're starting to get to a point where there's enough talent in the country? Um, I mean, I was talking to Janae Harding last week and, you know, when she started, she was the only girl, for instance, in, in her fight camp. She was one of the, the, the original ones there. Uh, where now they do have these sessions where they've got, you know, 10, 12 girls and stuff. So it is growing. But do you think we're at a point now where we've got enough talent in the country or do you still think, you know, you need to be travelling either to the States or bringing some people over? I, I think we we probably do have enough talent. Whether the talent is working together is another thing. I know in New Zealand they have city kickboxing and it looks like... Um, Eugene, They're doing real well. Yeah, Eugene Behrman over there has got a good little crew of guys who help each other out. I think the big problem we have here is, and, and I experienced this myself, is that the team was kind of built around uh, myself fighting. So then I had these training partners, and when I wasn't fighting, there was nobody else fighting, and it, the sessions kind of fluctuated up and down. I used to have to to bring in, um, you know, uh, we'd meet up with Alex Volkanovsky or Robert Whitaker or um, you know some of these guys, and we'd all get together and do these super sessions, which was good. But there was still a little bit of disconnect, and more probably on a geographical scale in terms of. You know, Alex lived down south, and and Robert lived you know south southwestern Sydney, and I lived up you know north. So it was more like trying to get the quality of training partners together in one place was very hard. I think in Melbourne they're starting to get that with um, Daniel Kelly's gym down there in Resilience, where they have a lot of UFC fighters and top level guys working together in combination with other gyms. If they need a better striking coach or whatever it is, they bring it. They bring somebody in. Um, so I think we're not far off it, and um, it, it's a bit of a shame. I think when I first started, that the gyms did separate, and and it was a bit of that kind of 
we stick to ourselves, we look after ourselves. But I think people realised if they want to be better and Australia wants to you know, kind of put themselves on the map, that we need to train together and, and just kind of take away that um, hostility between gyms. So I think to answer your question, I, I've seen it in New Zealand, I've seen it in Melbourne, I'm seeing it, I'm seeing decent fight teams here, but I'm yet to see like a stable of top fighters. Do I think you need to be in a stable of 10 or 20 fighters? No. Do you need to have two or three good training partners? Yes. Do you need to have a bunch of training partners that you're probably better than? Yes. Um, safe training partners? Yes. Um, you know, you go to some gyms and it, it flip a coin, it could be dangerous. You know, you could go there and from overseas and they could want to light you up. Um, I've had good experience. I went to Uriah Faber's gym and although he didn't have as many big guys, he looked after me. We had good training partners, but I've seen both sides of it. Um, and, you know, Robert Whitaker would probably tell you if you speak to him, he went overseas and didn't have as good experience in terms of, of what he wanted and what he got. And now he has a great team here with, with Alex Prates, um, you know, in, in Gracie Hamaita, Smeet and Great. So it's a, it's a catch-22. I think you need to go overseas to see what they're doing and upskill potentially in terms of wrestling like we talked about before. But, um, you know, Australia's jiu-jitsu, if, if you can find it, are wrestling, of course. You only need one good coach. Um, our striking's always been top level and I think Australians are um, you know developing MMA quicker than anywhere else you know it's just that we've got that sporting culture and that want to be better so to answer your question I don't think we need to be in part of a big team whether it be Extreme Couture or um, ATT does it hurt to go overseas and train with the you know with the best or with the biggest teams no it definitely doesn't um, but you know you need to have a coach who's you know obviously looking out for you getting the right sparring partners at the right time I see uh, too many people just sparring hard day in, day out, and that's going to that's gonna take its toll. And unless you're the best guy in the gym, you're eventually going to get hurt. You're going to get knocked out in the gym. You're going to lose your chin. You'll be injured. So there's times to spar hard, and there's times to spar moderate. And then there's times to not spar. And I think people need to be told sometimes what the, when that is and how that looks because um, if it was up to fighters, you know, we'd train hard every day and we'd spar every day and we probably wouldn't spend enough time drilling and doing the little things. So... The communication parts, uh, what makes a good coach and what makes a good team is, you know, the quality of people and the, the atmosphere, I think, more so than the, the, the talent of skill. And in, in your eyes, what makes a good, um, I guess, training or sparring partner? And, um, you know, like, what, what, what do you think are the qualities of, of like, a, a good training partner? Um, is it someone that, for instance, pushes you to your limits or is it someone that allows you, uh, that maybe tapers off a little bit to allow you to, yeah. I, I guess, what, what, what's more important? I think depending on where you are in your fight camp and where you are in your skill development, um, sometimes you'll want somebody who is, um, you know, not as good as you so you can try new skills that you're learning in, say, for example, if I don't have a fight coming up or my athletes don't have a fight coming up and they're in the um, off-camp phase, meaning that we don't have a fight scheduled. Say, let's just say, for example, the off-camp goes between general prep and specific prep and uh, back and forth um, in three-week blocks. If they're in the off-camp phase in any part of that, they might be learning new skills or, or focusing on weaknesses, not necessarily winning those rounds. And in order to upskill and learn new skills, you need to uh, tone the sparring down, I believe, you know, to a moderate level so you're not scared and you don't have that fear of trying new things. But also that needs to be um, reiterated to training partners. So there needs to be an agreed level of sparring. Hey, guys, we're, we're sparring at level X today. That means that I can try new techniques without the fear of getting hurt. 
but also I can try new techniques and work on my weak areas. Otherwise, I won't have a chance because when it comes to fight camp, it's very much focused on winning, not learning. The level of sparring naturally is going to go up because you have a this fearful event coming up and you want to be in the best shape and everything just, you know, your senses, everything is just starting to peak. So, yeah, there's definitely an element of having training partners who are, A, can, can go the level you're going and match you so you can improve and when it's ready to go fight camp that they can pick it up. Um, so you need training partners, in my opinion, that are, are minus, so someone whose skill level is less than yours, someone who's equal and someone who's a plus. And depending on where you are in the fight camp or off camp will depend on where, we, where you will utilise those people. I think in the start of the fight camp, let's say I've ha- I have a fight eight weeks from now, it's probably important to um, have some hard rounds in that initial three, four weeks, some hard sparring sessions, and then you start to taper off. Um, obviously taper off with the um, volume of training as you peak towards a fight is natural, but also um, as you're getting towards that fight, I, I would start to pre pre-frame training partners. For example, two, three weeks out, when I want my fighter who's done his hard rounds, his fitness is great, he's in a great mind space, I want him to be confident in his skills. So I might say to the training partners, hey, mimic this fighter that he's fighting or do this. So it'll give my guy who's fighting or girl a certain look and give a desired result be it confidence, practicing a, a certain position or practicing on someone who's matching or mimicking their opponent, if that makes sense. It does, it does. And I, and I have to say, like, it, sparring is tough, man. Like, and, and, and I mean that, like, obviously with, with my journey that you were a part of, mm-hmm. you know, there were days that you would leave the gym and you'd be on top of the world. And I was literally, I, I was like, you could put me against, say, Jared, who was the light heavyweight, you know. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. be like, I'll, I'll take him, you know, like because you really come out of there feeling really good for whatever reason. And then you go in the next day or two days later and, and, mm-hmm. and you just feel like you're not ready, you know. Yeah, and, I, and, and, it, and it is a real, like, mental mind, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. You, you, you definitely get hit with a bit of adversity when you're sparring. Um, and I feel as though, I don't know if it's getting punched in the head that, that brings up those feelings of you know being overwhelmed or, or emotions or whatever it is, um, but you have to go through that. And I think there's a point, and that's why I said you get those spa, um, hard sparring sessions out in the first part of fight camp because I think it's important that people have that adversity. Um, they don't always feel like, oh, you know, I had an easy sparring session my whole way to fight camp. Uh, to the fight, sorry, and then they get to the fight and they get hit with their first part of adversity and they crumble. So I think there's definitely a part of fight camp where the sparring needs to be as close to fight scenarios as it can, obviously with no open elbows or knees or you know crazy techniques. Um, but people need to be tested. They need to be shark tanked. They need to be put through the rigor to make sure that they've, they've experienced that mental duress that when they come to the end of fight camp and they're building their confidence and they go to fight – that if something does or a spanner gets thrown in their works or the opponent moves a certain way they didn't expect or they get hurt, that they can bounce back from that. So that's the resilience that you kind of develop in fight camp. And and like you alluded to, there's hard times in fight camp. There's there's times when you go to sparring and I know myself when I went to sparring and I feel like leaving there crying because you lost, you got beat up. And, you're and like, you kind of hey. and you kind of feel like you're like I'm not going to come back tomorrow. Like you literally, yeah, you're, like, you're like, am I a fighter or am I am I just a little bitch? Because you know, maybe I should oh, maybe I should go get a job. You know, as a, you know, down there doing something else is a little easier. You know, this fighting stuff maybe I'm not cut out for it. And, and see, and this is where I think the wrestling comes back in. And this is what I was saying about the mindset. Like mm-hmm. I just find once again the restless now. Yeah. 
they leave there and they're like, I'm back tomorrow. But do you think wrestling teaches you a tough mindset or do you think that wrestling attracts tough people? I think it could be a bit of both, yeah. but I do definitely. And, and I had this conversation um, with someone probably like two years ago. And, and, and I mean, look, I'm not going to say it's 100% correct. And I forgot who I had the conversation with, mm-hmm. but it was kind, it kind of went down the theory of, say, let's take jujitsu, right? Mm-hmm. Jujitsu, you can tap, right? Mm-hmm. So mentally, in your mindset, it says when the Going gets tough. There's an out, right? So there, you know what I mean. Like it, yeah. it, it, it ingrains that into your mindset. It's like, and and like the other flip of that is like, I'd rather not break my arm and see to fight another day. So like, I'm not, I'm not trying to like say that's a bad thing, but mm-hmm. it does ingrain that if if something gets tough, like there I- there is the out. Um, yeah, for sure. Obviously, you'll still get the strong people that'll be like, "I'll black out before I tap out." Mm. You definitely do get that, but with yep. the wrestling, especially in the states, when they talk about that, you know, you don't even just have one wrestling match. Sometimes in these tournaments, the guys are like having five, six wrestling mm. matches in the one, in the one, you know, and and when it comes to the weight cutting and everything, it's just it's just a grindy sport, like it just really is, and and I think. There is no way out, you know what I mean? Like, at the end of the day, like, you're there to grind. And I think... So, yes, tough people go, like, gravitate towards wrestling, but I do think, like, in that sort of comparison, um, you know, I've I've never seen someone say, yeah, well, if the going gets tough in wrestling, you know, just throw in the towel or whatever. It's just, like, stick with it, grind it out, keep going, you know, put your head down, as they say in, in the striking, I guess, bite down on your mouthpiece and 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 go for it, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. Um, but yeah, then again, I just wonder: is that wrestling's not as popular these days? And I wonder: is it because it's just tough, and only the tough kind of survive it? Um, there's definitely an, an aptitude for wrestling. You know, you have to be physical. It's a physical sport. You have to be fit. You have to, you know, you have to grind. You have to be somewhat strength, uh, strong or flexible. But also, there's that mental aptitude where you have to be, you know back and forth you have to get up you have to be fit you know it, it all accounts for something and i think more so than jujitsu and the other arts wrestling seems to have many many tough people and i don't know again if it was nature or nurture you know if it's if it's their background or, or where they're from or is it necessarily just that they're athletic you know phenoms and i think it's a mixture of both i think we can agree on that and we definitely see some of the best fighters coming from that you know, college wrestling or Dagestan pedigree where they where they have that grind and then they learn how to strike. And like I said, because I believe striking is intention more than it is technical. So they don't need 10 years to learn how to be a technically proficient striker. They just need to know how to throw an overhand right and knock your head off. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing great wrestlers who have great grind, fitness for days, and can punch. And they can take a punch, you know, and, and that's ultimately why a lot of them are left standing at the top of the pile. And I think we'll continue to see that. And and in my opinion, if I were to train any style or anything, like you said, it would be wrestling and striking. So, you know, practice your get-ups, practice your cage defense, your anti-clinch to stay striking, or if you want to stay in the clinch, but but that style. Because I think that the jiu-jitsu, you know, hold somebody down, pass them, get to mount, tap them with an arm lock, I think those days are few and far between, as you probably see with the percentage of... Uh, UFC stoppages and finishes from mount or you know leg locks or anything like that. It, competition jiu-jitsu and MMA are going two different ways. 
Yet I still find that um, getting the submission is more satisfying than getting a knockout, which yeah. is kind of weird, right? And, yeah. and I mean, and I love it. I love watching the leg locks in the UFC, and if you get somebody who can who can do it at that level, I mean, that's impressive. So anyway, going back, so we finished tough. Uh, you made the UFC. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how many fights did you end up having there? Like five, right? Six. Six? I, six. I actually don't know. Six, five. <laughs> They're all, so, all, uh, all, all one big blur. It's a bit of a blur. Hold on, let me just think. Yeah, five. You're right. Is there is there one that was a highlight? Probably Melbourne, right? For one ninety three. Melbourne one ninety three. I mean, look, I think my career, um, if I'm if I'm being very honest with myself, was was up and down, and I think possibly um, a little bit premature to get into the UFC in terms of um, how long I'd been fighting and my development as a fighter mentally. Um, you know, I feel like if I had the mindset that I do now with the skill that I have now, entering the UFC would be a totally different thing. Do I want to fight now? No. <laughs> do I want to fight? I was going to say, so on that, do you ever get the itch though again? No, like, not really. Like, you know, I might watch a fight and then I remember how hard it is when you're in there. As you know, when you get in there and you feel those nerves, that's not for everybody. And I think everybody feels those nerves. It's a matter of how you react in that situation. And um, in the cage, definitely was something that's addicting, but the outside and the lead up to it and the trying to manage your own um, personal life and friends and family and, and have a balance for me was not really there and not enjoyable. Um, the process, you got to enjoy the process, I think. And I wasn't enjoying the process in the end as much as I was in the beginning. And, um, you know, it certainly got to do with wins and losses and um, a matter of, you know, is this going to work out or not going to work out, etc. So at some stage you got to decide which path you want to take. And, and for me, that led to coaching. I mean, when you, when you give 10 years to professional fighting, you know, um, and you enjoy it and you enjoy training, um, after a certain point, I started to lose that kind of, that desire to train again and, and want to be the best. So I took a step back and, and d- discovered that, you know, coaching and just doing it for fun, which is what I did, for, you know, I did it for at the start, was much more enjoyable and gave me a different perspective on the whole thing. Um, in terms of career, I mean, highlights probably, yeah, fighting in UFC 193 in front of 57,000 people in Melbourne was was definitely a highlight. Um, I mean, but it's just taken me... And you got the W on that yeah, one. I, got, I, 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 I was actually down in Melbourne. I was down in Melbourne yeah. for that one. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, got, I remember that one. And I got the W. I mean, and look, it took me around the world. Took me to Japan, took me to Canada, everywhere training and the people that I've met and the places that I've been. I mean, money can't buy that. And which do you prefer? Do you prefer fighting on home turf or do you do you like seeing the world? And I guess the payoff there is seeing the world, um, you know, jet well, lag, yeah, travel. Exactly. All I, of that that comes with it where fighting at home, you, I guess you got a little more pressure because, like, you've got to yeah. defend the turf. You've got well, family think, and friends going. I think fighting at home was a little bit actually harder. Logistically, it was easier. I didn't have to fly an extra coach overseas. I could do my camp here. There was no... Um, allowance you know we try to allow a day for for each hour of time zone difference so there wasn't those type of things to worry about but um, I, like you said I think I perform better when I have more pressure and I had more pressure of being out of my comfort zone overseas so besides when I fought in Los Angeles and, and didn't go so well but in Japan and, and you know I felt like being the underdog and fighting overseas is um, an opportunity to step up you know step up to the plate and you know, prove yourself. And, and that's probably a regret of mine is not taking more fights overseas. I had the opportunity to take fights overseas, but opted for the home fights. Um, again, there's the question of, 
are they going to give you favourable matchups if you're a hometown fighter? Are they not? You know, and it depends where you are in the pecking order, I think, and, and how experienced and, and what kind of value you give to the company or you know, the promotion because at the end of the day, it's a business. And, and fighting overseas, what, what, what was the hardest thing for you to, there? Was it the, the time zone thing? Was it um, – you sometimes hear about like people talking about like food, right? Because you yeah, go food, to a – for me because not so much in, in Los Angeles or Canada. Well, Canada was a bit different. But in Japan particularly, when I, I hadn't been to Japan. I went to fight in Tokyo. We were staying at the, a nice hotel, the Hilton, in the, in the, in the centre of town. And, and – um, yeah, it was just a little bit tricky getting food because a lot of the food was covered in, like, you know, they salt a lot of their meat and, and being... Not good a, for weight cuts, yeah, right? not good for weight cuts. And and particularly then 2014, I didn't know that much about weight cutting, you know. And, and by the time that my career ended, I knew a lot about nutrition, a lot about weight cutting, a lot about periodization, scheduling, etc. All these things, mental side of it, which I just had no idea. And, and sometimes I wonder, was I better off not knowing? <laughs> but as a coach, it's obviously better to know. So now, um, so on that though, now knowing that when when they sometimes talk about like the fight game being ninety percent mental, temp, you know, ten percent obviously the physical side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to dieting, how much do you think that plays a role? Like, obviously, you know, you had like Dolce make a big name for himself and yeah. stuff because he became this elite dietitian. Um, but like, and then you see people now jumping up weight class and they actually perform better because they're not depleted or they get more nutrition. Like how much do you think – I mean, we all know that massive. Have, ha, having a good diet is obviously – Yeah, it's a massive it, thing, especially if you can make a weight division lower and you can do it safely. Um, there's a lot of bad weight cutting, which I think would adversely affect you know the way that you fight, your gas tank, how you fight, how you perform – um, what I'm seeing now working with, you know, Reed Real, who's the head of um, nutrition at the Shanghai PI, is just the importance of having somebody who knows what they're talking about and prescribing the right kind of diet for the right person. And, you know, things like DEXA scans, just looking at how much fat-free mass you have and what percentage of your weight division you are, you know, um, what are some of the, you know, safe tolerances to make weight divisions would have been great for me to know, you know, when I first started fighting. I, I probably could have made lightweight, had I adjusted a few things in my diet, I just never dieted, never really took anything seriously like that and only had to cut five kilos. So I probably could have fought lightweight. It would have been a really hard cut. So am I better off staying up a weight and not worrying about it? Or am I better, you know, and trying to put on some more lean mass and, and lift more weights and, and be a bit more lenient with the diet? Or are you better off just kind of dieting down? Some people are more receptive to it. Some people aren't, you know, and I think it's all individual and subjective to the, the person. Um, in my opinion, you want to be the biggest you can for that weight division and you're going to have a big advantage. Um, again, if you're making such a big cut that you're physically weak and you're, you're, you're no good for it, well, then you're not, you're not in the right division. And um, safe to say you, you shouldn't want to be cutting as a male over kind of 10% um, in fight week and as a female maybe 8% of your fight weight. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, that's my opinion now back to the you said it was 90% mental 10% physical I mean I agree with that but I don't agree with that in terms of how much time you dictate to doing one or the other Um, I think they're two different things Um, obviously you want to spend more time doing the skills and and less time you know doing yoga and mental stuff and mindfulness but that's definitely a big part of it and I think if if you do not have the mental part in line it doesn't matter how fit you are I'd I'd always say um, I'd rather my fighters be you know, 10% less fit you know, than they have to be, but mentally ready or mentally sharp. 
than as fit as they've ever been, but mentally depleted and feeling um, you know a little bit less confident. I mean, I think. I mean, confidence plays a huge part, right? I mean, like, and, and as absolutely. they say, like every fighter has to go in thinking that they're going to win because if you go in going, "This isn't a good matchup for me," you've lost. Yeah, like you, have, you have to be lost. realistic. I mean, you want to be. Um, this is my opinion. I'm only talking for myself. You want to be confident that you can win, but you need to know the risks. You need to know the risks, and um, there needs to be that element of I'm going to win no matter what, you know, and. and I want the fight to come to me. I think if you get too analytical, and this is probably something that I did, if you get too much into the this could happen, that could happen, this could happen, that could happen, it's it's not a good kind of um, mental you know, train of thought to go down. Um, it's almost better to be brazen and a bit um, cavalier in your approach and be like, fuck yeah, I'm going to win. Like I'm going to take the fight to you and I'm going to win. You know, And I'm in a dogfight, I'm going to win. Because um, I believe that's how you, you stay in that flow state of, of just fighting. If you start taking yourself back a little bit and thinking about um, the fight, I think you you know you can't start to lose it. I also think as well for your opponent, when they see you wreak that confidence, sometimes mm. it puts a little bit of a it's down intimidating. there. I mean, I mean, look at McGregor, for instance, right? Right at the beginning, just the way he came out and made a name for himself, but like... He's the pinnacle of probably confidence in the sport. Right? It was, it was just crazy. He had that much self-belief that I think it kind of like, even when it was the Jose Aldo, right? Like I kind of felt like that made, I'm not saying Jose Aldo was scared of him or anything, but there was a little bit of doubt that started to I creep in. I definitely, just looking at the, you know, the, the lead up to that fight, there's no doubt that that would get in your head. Like there's nothing you could do. If, if a guy is that confident and he's just constantly chipping away, chipping away, it's going to have effect, you know, an effect. And I think that's what we saw with Connor. Like his skills obviously matched his talk. His, his competence, his, sorry, his confidence and his competency were in line with each other. Maybe his confidence a little bit higher. But, I mean, that's the kind of fruition of, of his hard work and believing in himself, I, I believe anyway. And, and he won the title. He won it in two divisions. And you're probably looking at one of the most accomplished fighters in the UFC and people can say what they want to say whether they like him or not as a person or as a fighter, I don't think anybody can say they don't like him as a fighter. And he was a game changer. Absolutely. Straight up. He's a, I mean, you know, I, I guarantee... John Jones, I, Ronda Rousey, I, him. I, I guarantee you right now, you're probably ho- wishing that um, he he came about before you had your fighting career because you probably put another couple of zeros behind you. <laughs> you, you. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, he, he yeah. literally lifted the, the the pay rise, I guess, for all fighters in a sense, right? Because before him, people weren't making that kind of money. No, like, and I mean, I, I understand the importance of having uh, personalities in the sport. There was, you know, when I was fighting, there was uh, Ronda and, you know, John Jones and, you know, these kind of big names and people who had personalities, especially with Ronda with the women, um, bringing the standard of fighters up and bringing some kind of uh, notoriety to, to to women's MMA. And then Connor just coming across and he was kind of the bridging the gap between the mainstream audience and, you know, you kind of weekend guys or your people who watch the UFC once a year to watching it weekly. And, um, I mean, there's a reason why the UFC is so popular in Australia and, and all around the world now, and that's because of big personalities like Connor kind of um, being that median between or that vehicle between the general public and, you know, rugby fans and non-fans to MMA fans and, and that's the link and that's better for the sport because the more people that watch the UFC and understand the sport, um, ultimately the better it is for myself as a coach, for the fans, for the you know, for everybody involved. And that's kind of um that's how I feel about, you know, Conor McGregor and, and names like that. They they're game changers. I mean hundred percent I had Sam Goodman who's a boxer, but same thing. He was like, dude, like 
some of his press conferences are bigger than the fights like and that and that speaks volumes about his personality right but um look we'll 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 get on to your life now um so basically you had your stint in the the ufc um your last fight what 2017 18 2017 um i mean i I think i was 27 turning 28 i'm 31 now so i mean Yeah. yeah and and now you're working for the pi in shanghai yep um are you a joint over there? Because <laughs> are, are, are the people smaller over there? Yes, they are. But not to say that they don't have their anomalies and they've got a billion people. So there's there's certainly some big um, people that get thrown around in the mix. But your average person, yes, I'm taller than in, in China. So yeah, they, the UFC, um, I think it would have been almost five years ago now, opened the Performance Institute, sorry, four years ago, Performance Institute in Las Vegas, which is basically a hub of training for the uh, rostered athletes. So if there's roughly 500 athletes in the UFC, they can use the Performance Institute as a uh, place to train, get nutrition advice, um, sports science advice, strength and conditioning programs and advice, and also bring their team there to train. They have the full, you know, the full facilities, um, cryo chambers, cold pools, uh, wrestling mats, you know, you name it. It's there. It's it's the best facility. Do they there. have the tanning bed? <laughs> I was looking for it. Look at me. Um, I mean, it's it's basically the bee's knees of, of MMA and and performance. I mean, what what you see in other sports in NFL, NBA is these big, or even English Premier League is these big training facilities, and nothing like this existed in mixed martial arts. It was simply, you know, when I was training, it was you know you go to your local gym, who your jujitsu coach or your boxing coach owns, and you train with your team. You put your fight camp together, and you hope for the best. And what you're doing is the right thing. Um, you got to the only relationship you have with the UFC is that you're in a independent contract and you fight for them and you get paid as an independent contractor. Everything else is on you. You know your physio, your this, your that, um, your training, your diet. Now the Performance Institute was an opportunity for the UFC to you know kind of put their stamp on the sport, which they already had, but in a performance sense and uh, build a facility that's available to anybody on the roster where they can they can access um, you know their needs in terms of we just talked about whether it be sports science nutrition um rehab rehab anything right and it's a it's an all-encompassing facility um a lot of people if they're fighting in vegas or even if they're just fighting you can bring your you know your technical coaches there and train there now fast forward a few years later in um 2019 the ufc wants to set up a hub in shanghai china for asia so they they build a 15 million dollar u.s um gym which is where I work currently. There's the Asian office on one side for the Asian UFC and uh, on the other side there's a Performance Institute staff and we kind of operate the lower level, which is an S&C section, and the upper level, which is a wrestling mat section, two cages, a boxing ring, everything set up there for the for the Contender Series Asia, which was supposed to go ahead. You know, obviously with COVID, that didn't happen. Um, but what's different between our facility and the one in the US is, it's not just bigger and better in my opinion, <laughs> we actually have a uh, professional team. So in Las Vegas, they don't fo- focus on the technical skills, it's just everything else, all the auxiliary parts of mixed martial arts. We actually have uh, technical coaches, myself and Dean Amasinger, who uh, run a fight team there. So we have a, a professional fight team, um, which is Chinese athletes recruited from all over China, whether it be as far out as Tibet and um, and uh, you know Xinjiang, so, that, so, so does that mean you actually have people going to the PI that aren't currently signed? Is that what you're saying by having so, a so, so, so the idea of the academy athletes, which is what we're running, the first style of academy is that we will recruit the best unsigned athletes from around China 
and put them in our facility housing, food fully catered. You house them? We house them. We, we feed them. We have catering, international catering there, breakfast, lunch and dinner, uh, full physio, you know, um, sports science, strength and conditioning, technical coaching, you name it, the whole shebang. And we're also a hub for any Asian or any international UFC fighter that wants to come and join. So we have UFC rostered fighters in the facility and we have the academy athletes. Now, you brought up the Contender Series. So they're doing, you're saying they're going to do one in, in Shanghai? Correct. Yeah, correct. That was the initial plan was to uh, you know, cultivate, roster these athletes from around Asia and then uh, you know, bring up the standard of mixed martial arts in China, in the region, um, and then you know, kind of put this talent on the Contender Series. Like we're fighting them on domestic shows, um, cornering them, etc. And then once they're in the UFC, they're going to be... Um, you know, UFC athletes, so obviously they'll be fighting in the in the big show. But the contender series was going to be that median to bring in these domestic level fighters into the big show and and bringing and pitching it against international fighters from around the world in our facility, having the show. I mean, everything set up the the lighting, the rigs, you know, the cage. So it's all good to go. I mean, it's going to be a massive, massive deal for uh, Chinese MMA and Asia in general, really. Um, just having that hub of um, you know talent and building that up, and I mean. Ultimately, what we're trying to do there is, on my side, is is bring up the standard of mixed martial arts in China and, and Asia and the region. And on a bigger side is make the popularity of the sport there bigger. You know, they've got Wei Li Jung, who was actually at the facility for the last two months training. Um, you know, and if we can build a few more Chinese And champions. talking about size, she's big, right? Like for, 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 for the women, like... She's I mean, strong. She, she's, she's definitely at the, uh, in terms of testing... Um, in strength and speed and power, she's at the top of the division. Yeah, so she's she's fit, strong, fast, and she's a quick learner. Scary woman, crazy, very, very nice lady. And if you were to have your time again, like just now on the contender, would you would you still like to go down the route of the tough series, or do you do you prefer the contender series? Because I, I kind of see like that's the replacement now, where it's like instead of spending all this time in a house and then fighting you just go straight to the fight with your camp rather than being under these other coaches, yeah, I, I right? I would definitely think the Contender Series is, and you've seen it with uh, Jimmy Crute and, you know, uh, in terms of Australian athletes, but I think it's a great opportunity because it's, it is it is that kind of middle ground between, um, you know, the, the big, you know, small domestic shows or whatever it is and, and the UFC. And um, I actually like the content. I like the idea of the show and, you know, get on this stage and, and prove yourself. And, and, as a fighter, I don't like people doing anything they wouldn't do in, an, in a regular fight to try to get a contract. But I think that that kind of hunger of, hey, if you win this fight, you know, and it's on the line, we get a contract and Dana White being there, I think that that is um, definitely more exciting. So he would travel across for that contender series? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, obviously with COVID-19, there's... Well, at the moment, everything's yeah, on hold. But like, typically speaking, if if the say once COVID finishes, the the series goes ahead, he would actually fly across to to that, to be at the contender series. That was the original plan. Nice. So I I guess the last thing I kind of want to say, like, how how did you ending up over there even happen? Like, did what was it a thing that you knew was um sort of in the works and and you put your best foot forward, or did they approach you once you obviously um Okay, so originally um, I was in Sydney coaching after I'd finished up fighting um, and there was an opportunity to coach in China just for a three-month stint at a um, jiu-jitsu gym, okay? and a mixed martial arts jiu-jitsu gym. And, and I took the opportunity just to go coach for three months and that turned into almost a year. 
and I was planning on coming back to Australia. That was 2018, end of the year. I was planning on coming back to Australia. Before I finished up my contract there, um, I had a, uh, someone contact me from the UFC Asia um, saying that they wanted to set up a meeting with uh, Forrest Griffin. And, and actually, let me re- let me rewind even further. So when I first got to China... <laughs> you thought he wanted to fight you, right? He was coming back out of retirement when also. I, when I first got to China, um, a friend of mine, Uriah Faber, contacted me saying, hey, I'm involved in, um, you know, getting coaches for a new performance institute that uh, could be happening in China. Are you interested? Oh, this is kind of out of the blue. You know, I hadn't heard from Uriah for a while. And I said, yeah, sure, let's have a phone call. So we had a phone call, went for 40 minutes, and he, he kind of told me, hey, look, I'm, I'm looking for coaches. I'm helping the UFC out on a contractual basis or whatever it is, looking for coaches to um, go to China for their second installment of the Performance Institute. Is it something that you're interested in coaching? I said, yeah, of course, because, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say no to anything, and especially if Uriah Faber's calling me, telling me there's a good opportunity. So um, fast forward eight months later, then I get a contact from somebody in the UFC Asia office, uh, actually Peter Jung, um, who said, look, Forrest Griffin wants to have a chat to you. So anyway, um, this went on, had a phone call to Forrest. My phone kept dropping out because I, I wasn't even using <laughs> the regular phone. I was using WeChat. <laughs> and Forrest to this day still says, that nearly cost you a job. <laughs> so he said to me, look, um, we're opening up a PI in, in China. Um, you were recommended by Uriah Faber as somebody who'd been over there co- you know, um, training and, and we know you coach and you've got experience coaching and you've been in the UFC. Would you be interested in coming to Las Vegas for an interview? And I, I said, yeah, okay, let's do it. And, you know, I mean, I've got nothing to lose, right? Um, so at the end of the year, went over to Vegas for an interview, um, met the vice president of you know, athletics, of the PI, Forrest Griffin, you know, and did a little presentation to them about you know, my methodology of coaching and how I would um, you know, schedule and periodize a training camp and, and you know, just basically my idea of – what is MMA and how I would coach and how I coach. And, um, and part of that was actually doing a, a session for Forrest at, um, at a gym in, in Vegas. So he took me to Vegas and said, oh, I want you to coach a session <laughs> with some of these MMA fighters. So, and, and one of, actually one of them was Jojo Calderwood in that class. So that was my interview. It was come over, present your kind of coaching style and how you do it and, and coach a class. And then after that, you know, I went, thanks, and flew back to Sydney and Got a call from them, uh, you know, a month later saying, look, yeah, we want to we want to bring you over to China. Are you interested? You know, we'll start getting the contract together and work out what we can do. And at this stage, I didn't know who was coaching, who was, you know, what role it was for, anything. Okay, so it turns out it was, um, you know, the assistant coach to Dean Amersinger, who is or was Michael Bisping, one of Michael Bisping's coaches and a guy with great experience. He's been in the Ultimate Fighter himself. He coached the Ultimate Fighter Smashes, uh, Robert Whitaker's season. He was one of the coaches. He, he'd, um, you know, obviously had a lot of fights himself and experience and, and also worked in rugby union was a, as a tackling coach for the English rugby team and in Japan. So he, he'd had a wealth of experience and, and a really, like with a science background, he's a, quite a technical guy and, and I've definitely learned a lot from him on, on the side of um, programming and, and just general running sessions and, and coaching athletes, which is something that, you know, he's got a, a great deal of experience and learned a lot over the last, you know, 10 years himself coaching and then for me to learn off him, it's almost expedited, you know, every day I'm, I'm learning bits and pieces off everybody. Now, is it a, a lot of sign language over there or, or do you speak Chinese or how, how does that all work? I'd like to say I speak Chinese well, but I don't. I speak a little bit and um, 
we have a translator. So I have a translator, Eddie, who's also a jiu-jitsu At every coach. session? Every session I have um, a guy called Eddie and um, Eddie is actually a jiu-jitsu coach as well, speaks English and he's translating. So what I say, I try to keep it succinct. I'm, you know, my coaching style has been, uh, you know, ad- adapted. You know, there's not this long-winded, you know, when you go to a jiu-jitsu class and you know, you've got to grab the lapel, you've got to use your third index finger here and, you know, caress his arm. There's, there's not so much of that. It's, you know, this is... These guys are already at a high level. It's to the point. To the point. We have a lot of high-level wrestlers who wrestled for China or Mongolia, um, people with a lot of experience already. So I don't don't need to give the basics. I I need to show the technique we're doing, break it down as simple as I can, let them try it, and I'll always bring them back in minutes later and and then give the finer details. Um, So that's been interesting, coaching in English under translation as you can imagine you, you've got to be to the point because the message is getting translated so it's double the time i can't be sitting there just fluffing about and and, uh, and has anything ever been lost in translation yeah I, uh, maybe <laughs> I, I don't think so because they're probably the best athletes that i've coached in terms of um wanting to learn and then applying the skills and you know not so much to their detriment but they're very much any questions no questions ever it's just we do as you say, you're the coach, you know, this is how I do it, and they'll do it exactly the same way. Um, so what I've been trying to, which I don't have, I, I find with general um, Chinese population in terms of coaching, it's hard to get that um, lateral thinking and um, uh, to get them to think outside the box. But I don't find that with mixed martial artists and, and Chinese fighters because as an MMA fighter, you've got to be kind of creative and I feel like you've got to go against the grain to some, to some point. So you get a lot of creative minds in MMA and uh, for me, keeping it simple, keeping the the techniques that I'm showing simple allows them to then put their creative flair on top. And um, I've found them to be the best, you know, to coach. They listen, they learn, they want to train hard. They do train hard. They do everything you say. So it's, it's, they're not robots, but they're as close as you can get. I think that, you know, growing up uh, in China makes them a little bit tough. And uh, when are you looking at going back? Like, obviously, once again, there's a pandemic, there's border yeah. restrictions at the moment, but have they given you kind of a time frame of you going back now? Yeah, well, the gym's been operational for a month, uh, so the fighters are back, there's fights going on in China. Um, I'm looking to get back probably in a month to six weeks. I have a visa for China, it's just a matter of sorting out... Um, sorry, I have a invitation letter to, back to China, it's just a matter of sorting out the visa and, and getting a time to do that. Um, and then booking flights and getting back over. But obviously with you know, everything in storage over there and my wife and, and, and little baby. She's not in storage, right? <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. Um, she'll kick my ass. <laughs> so I'll be heading back to China probably in the next you know, six weeks and, and definitely do a stint by myself over there. Um, but, you know, I want to get back to work. And, and then t- hopefully come back once the, uh, the, the diaper changes are finished, right? That's when you'll be coming back. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, at the moment, I'm I need I need an extra set of arms here. The amount of nappies I'm bloody changing, but it's it's been a real good opportunity. You know, in light of the COVID and not being able to be at work and and coach um, has given me time. You know, as as a dad and um, help out you know my wife and uh, you know get up at two in the morning and have a screaming baby. <laughs> hey, you you had nine months to prepare yourself. So I know. I, know. I mean, but like again, I think that's more to do with the woman you know the, the hormones are happening with them everything's happening to them you're just kind of standing there like a like a tit like you know until the until the baby's there screaming it, it wasn't necessarily real um but yeah but back on the on the china thing i think i'll go back as, as soon as possible um you know obviously bring the wife and, and uh baby over when when that's safe and when people can travel again um but you know 
the idea was to get as many people in the UFC as, as possible out of the academy athletes. So I want to graduate them into the contender series and then into the UFC and not just get them there for one to two fights and then you know, they'd be cut. We want to get people in the UFC who are going to stay there, who are going to be names, who are going to kind of build the sport up for China and eventually the whole Asian region, um, you know, as, as the gym gets bigger and we recruit more and more athletes. So it's really the first of its kind um, in-house, you know, from go to woe in terms of bringing professionals in and, and keeping them there as stable of fighters and trying to get as many in the UFC as we can. Um, so my goal ultimately would be to have you know, a champion come through, um, work with them myself and then get them to the UFC level as a champion. Um, but the company's goals, again, is you know, making as many UFC fighters as we can and keep the sport growing. Well, that's it. And I think what will happen, we had the uh, tough smashes, tough nations, and now we'll go to tough PI, which will be you and Forrest Griffin against <laughs> each other. And, 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 and we'll see how that all works out. But listen, we're, we're probably going to finish up uh, about now. We're running a little over. But before I do, I want to get a few fight tips out of you. Oh, oh, before we do fight tips, the first one, I guess, is Stipe right now. The, the, the conversation was obviously... John? Well, first Francis was guaranteed that spot, right? Yeah. And and like he had earned it again, but we've seen that fight. Now John's making that case. We've seen this fight. Mm. You know, does it make so much sense? In your in your eyes, do you think it is better for us to do the Francis Stipe and John get the, the winner of that where John has already said, well, if Stipe loses that, that cancels out that fight. Um, where if... You know, John and Stipe fought right now. It would be the ultimate super fight. Or, or do you? I, I or think if John and Stipe fought, I think John would win. Like, this is my opinion. I think John would win. Um, what I would like to see is uh, Francis and Stipe, and I think Francis would win. And I'd love to see John Jones try and fight um, Francis. So, so you think <laughs> that um, Francis has uh, has got because Stipe kind of had his number right with the wrestling the, the last time out. You you think that Francis will I be able to nullify that now? I do, I do, because I think that he hadn't been in the sport long enough. I don't think his experience was enough. And since then, he, I know he'd been working with the PI over in Vegas on his um, energy systems and just how to kind of get on top of that. And I'd like to hope that he's improved in, what, how long has it been since he fought him? A year or two? Two years? Two years? I'd, I'd like to think that he's improved a lot because he'd only been in the sport for four or five years at that stage. Um, you know, and, and Stipe being where he's at and, and the amount of, you know, kilometers or miles that he's got on his clock i feel like it's just ripe for uh, francis to come in and, and kind of have that second showdown and take the belt that's my opinion but you know i've been i've been wrong in more of these than i've been right <laughs> so i'm not a betting man um now i don't want to get you into trouble um so i don't really want to mention another organization but there's a fight with uh our aussie hopefully fighting chris cyborg Mm -hmm. Right, which is Arlene. Yeah, we can talk about it. That's fine. Okay, <laughs> sweet. Um, yeah, how how do you see see that fight? Like, obviously, I I, I take it you'd be vouching for the Aussie, of course. And um, oh, look, how, I, how look, I have no idea because, um, you know, again with Cyborg, again having some tough fights in the UFC, um, and then making a way back to Bellator. I think uh, that's anyone's fight, and obviously, I'm always going to back the Aussie. So I'd like to see, um, you know. The Aussie win and and uh, get on top. All right, and now back to the US. <laughs> you really put me on the spot there. Like, yeah. you want the Aussie to win? Or yeah. Chris, look, uh, Cyborg's a hard fight for anybody. Cyborg's a hard fight for any man or woman. <laughs> well, yeah, but 
on that token, I, I kind of say she's like the Ronda Rousey, mm-hmm. right? That yeah. for for a long, I mean, Conor McGregor was the same for this long period of time. It was like they were untouchable, right? And and totally and, and, and and you got that aura around them, right? Once that's broken, you don't know. And 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 that's the thing. Like, yes, Cyborg was this unbeatable monster, mm, but mm. then Nunes showed and just. Yeah, right, and walked through her. Absolutely, and same with, I mean, Rousey as well. Rousey the same. Yeah. Holly Holm showed, you know, kind of like, this is a way you can beat her, keep it on the feet, and da 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 And then it, it kind of went downhill from there. But, um, so I'm, I'm actually really interested to see that fight, right? Like, I've actually got to catch up on, on both of their last fights and just, you know, to really get a good idea of, I'm not a betting man, and I, you know, I would, would really not recommend myself putting any bets on any fights because like I said I've been wrong more than I've been right <laughs> um, but now I'm going to put you on the spot as well since you say you'll always back the Aussie mm. staying with the women who? Megan Nadia. Anderson who's she fighting? Amanda Nunes oh, that's a big fight that's a big fight yeah because I know Megan Anderson's had, had her ups and downs in, in terms of fights um I mean, how do you bet against Amanda Nunez? I mean, I haven't seen... Well, I don't know. You were just saying that you'd never bet against the Aussie. <laughs> so that <laughs> I'm so not betting, though. I'm not betting. I mean, I'm just saying that's a tough fight. I mean, a really tough fight. I mean, if anything that I can give the advantage to um, uh, to the Aussie is just the height advantage, potentially, six foot, yeah? She's 180, 183 yeah. centimetres. I mean, she's if she can effectively use that range, which I've seen in the last fight, you know, using that range... Um, She'll do well, but I mean Nunez hits like a truck. I mean this is a this is a tough fight. I mean she's definitely, um, from what I've seen in the division, um, leaps and bounds above the technical prowess of anybody else in terms of putting the game together. I mean she just keeps getting better and better. Um, she's a true a mixed martial artist. She's well rounded. Um, she's tough. I mean she's a she's a tough champion to dethrone. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna put money on anyone on that one. <laughs> Obviously, I'd like to see the Aussie win. And an in, in, interesting thing me. about that was Ariel Hawani brought up that um, apparently with Megan, it's the last fight of a contract, and usually he was saying that you know when you fight for a title, they'll they'll usually try to up your contract before you go into it, but they haven't done that this time. So he's kind of saying that if Nunes wins this fight, they're probably going to squash that division. Mm-hmm. Where if Megan pulls off the upset that they will there's a clause of some sort that if you win the champion you you get another three fights on there there's an actual clause and that's what he's saying that's why they haven't extended it so if Megan wins they'll they'll keep the division if she loses they'll probably squash that division which once again this is his yeah I haven't heard anything about them squashing that division the same there was similar chat with the 125 uh, men's division but it seems like there's some good fighters now you know cropping up in that division so it looks like it's there to stay I mean, yeah, there's always been talk about that, but I can't speak from it. I literally have no idea. Ariel probably has as good idea of any, as anyone else in terms of that. And how's he getting to these contracts anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and now a non-title fight, and I just want to get your opinion on it. Uriah Hall has finally got a fight, mm-hmm. right? Like he's had, probably had the worst luck out of anyone with just fights not coming... Not coming his way, not coming not, to fruition. Right, um, but he's now taking on the great Anderson Silva which is possibly going to be Anderson's retirement fight. Yeah, well, I mean, Anderson's been going longer than I think a lot of us gave him credit for. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's a tough one to pick. I mean, that is a really tough one to pick. I mean, at some at one stage, Anderson was the, you know, the GOAT. He 
years. I mean, he's still probably up there in the top, um, you know, two or three best fighters of all time in mixed martial arts. And and he hasn't disgraced himself. Um, you know, when, when some people kind of lose it towards the end of their career and start losing a lot of fights and they kind of go out looking, you know, not like they used to be in terms of, I think this is a good fight for him to finish on. I think it's winnable for him. Um especially against Uriah Hall, because I, I feel as though um, Uriah Hall is somebody who gets to the top kind of fights and um, hasn't gone as well as he'd probably like to. So I think for um, Anderson, it's going to be a good striking battle and should be an exciting fight. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely be interested to, to see that one. It's a, it's a little bit like when uh, Anderson fought um, Adesanya. Izzy. Yeah, Izzy. Everybody thought that Izzy was just going to walk through him, but he didn't. He kind of showed that he still had a bit of class and definitely on the feet is still dangerous. So... I'm going to back Anderson Silver on this one. No, and, and, and that's why I wanted to bring it up because yeah. it isn't a title fight, but I think it's a good fight. I think it's I a actually, good, it's a good I think exciting it's, fight for his I last think fight. It, and just stylistically, I think it's going to be like, as you said, the easy fight. I think it's going to be a very entertaining fight. Now we'll go to the last two um, title fights. You're really putting me on the spot here. Right? <laughs> so we got, we got Khabib versus Justin. Yep, Justin Gaethje versus Khabib. Yep. How do you see that one? <sighs> Man... I mean, after watch, I, I would have thought that nobody will come close to uh, Khabib, um, but after seeing uh, Gaethje's last fight, I think if anybody can take it from him, he's the man. You know, I did say Ferguson. I, I said this last time. I said Ferguson. You know, is the is the guy who's going to take it from um, Khabib? But uh, you know, I see Justin being that guy now. Um, I think if he can defend the takedowns and he can start putting some hands on him, it's going to change the whole course of events of that fight and look justin's got a good wrestling background as well absolutely and i I think he's he's up to the task i mean his skill set his power his endurance is more than enough to win that fight so i'm I'm backing him in that one nice um and then last but not least izzy versus cost by the way in that last fight i mean I'm, i'm backing a guy you know or i'm backing against a guy who's never lost i mean i don't think Khabib's ever lost has he no yeah and he's planning on retiring undefeated, right? He wants he wants yeah. to be the Floyd of, of MMA. Yeah. Look, I'm gonna I'm gonna go against him on that one. And and with the last one, you're saying Izzy and Costa. Izzy and Costa. Ooh, that's a big one. That's a big one. I mean, most people have said it's gonna be the Yol versus Izzy, except Costa's actually gonna force the action where Yol kind of sat back. Oh, so yeah. you've got that power. I thought Yol was looking like very dangerous to me it looked like Izzy didn't want to engage in terms of with Romero um I thought Romero was a little bit more there to fight but he was he he wanted Izzy to bring the fight to him and I think when Izzy felt that power he wasn't going to engage um in this fight I see uh Costa being a little bit different I see him just coming forward and just swinging you know and he's gonna oh it's gonna be fireworks that's all I can say but uh, my opinion is this um is he's a good counter striker yeah, though? He, he's so a good counter striker, but I feel like if if Costa can mug him and put hands on him early, he could really hurt him. Whether he can finish him, I don't know. Um, I see Izzy being good off the back foot, so if Costa comes forward, it's going to be good for Izzy. So what I see is that um, this is going to go later round fight, and uh, Izzy's going to be winning on the back foot because I think he's too he's too sharp, he's too good on the back foot, and you're going to see him. Uh, touch him a lot, use a lot of kicks, keep at distance, give respect to Costa's power in the first two, three rounds, and then you'll see him start to land the more accurate shots in the later rounds. That's how I see that going. Nice. Well, 
I guess that is it. I've got no more tough questions for you. Okay. Um, just, I guess, uh, what I always give uh, every guest is the opportunity to just let everyone know if people want to reach out to you, whether it's on a personal, whether it's to get some training tips, or I guess even as you say now with the fight team, like if, you, if, you, yeah. if you've got people out there, and it, like is there tryouts to the fight team or like, yeah, so if people want to reach out to you, what is the best way for them to get to you? Yeah, if, if you anybody out there who's listening wants to reach out, um, probably just message me on Instagram at richufc. Um, I'll shoot you back a, a message. Might be a couple of days later, as as we find out. But um, yeah, that's probably the best way to contact me. And I'm happy to pitch any questions on training, um, any general advice, or you know, if anybody's looking for any sessions while I'm in town, um, seminars, coaching sessions, just let me know. Drop me a line. And thanks for having me on. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I have to say, like, I really respect your honesty and especially about you taking a couple of days to get back. Um, but no, look, it, it, uh, you know, uh, I really do appreciate the time, especially knowing that you've just had the kid and, and all the things that come with it. And, you know, your time in Sydney at the moment is limited before you go back. Um, yeah. So, you know, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, on that note, we will call it quits. I'm away, I'm away